Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master chat GPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. And welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligaris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. And today we have on, I guess we've had before, but it's been a couple years, Mike Smart, who is a product consultant that accelerates product sales growth and develops market-driven practices that improve outcomes. And he kind of does this through his role both as a founder and managing principal at Egress Solutions. I know he served as an advisor for several different startups. And he also just has a sort of great stable of thought leadership, both written and spoken, that he's always out and contributing as well. So we are extremely excited to have Mike Smart on board. Hi, Mike. Hi, Rebecca. It's been a while, but always a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Yes, yes. So today we are going to focus on sort of strategic planning for 2024. I know it's crazy. It feels like it, like the summer literally just ended. But all of us know like we are actually in planning and budget season. It It's not just like almost here. It's actually time. So today we want to kind of help give you some guidance of things that are going to help. But before we jump in, Mike, for those who haven't had the pleasure of talking with you and learning from you before, give me a little bit of your origin story, right? Like, how did you get where you are today? The short version at this <laughs> stage of my life has to be the short version. So as far as professional concern, I tell people now I've been in some relationship to technology and B2B software for most of my adult life. And that's absolutely true now. And I started out in the sales side of the equation and had an epiphany one day and went into product management. And everybody thought I went crazy. But I literally found my place. I found my oh. niche. And I've been doing that for a couple of decades now in a number of capacities, product manager, first line product manager, writing stories, epics requirements, a product director leading a small team, a EVP of product and development for four years, running a very large multinational team, a short stint with Pragmatic Institute. Um, consulting and training, which is where I really learned how to be a product manager after having done it all those times. And then back <laughs> as a consultant. And then recent times I've been doing consulting, mostly with mid-market companies, some larger enterprise, and a lot of that work going on through the private equity channel because they control and have possession of a large part of the technology mid-market. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I really like when we have our conversations, Mike, is that you bring in a definite product management mindset, but a really strong understanding of the opportunities and some of the challenges on the go-to-market side. I think part of that's your experience in sales, right? I think it's easy when you've only worn one of those hats to think that the other hat 
is just not capable, right? Necessarily. So I, I think that you bring a really well-rounded point of view of the capabilities and the needs of both sides, which I think will be great for this conversation today. I, I thank you for saying that and recognizing it. It is probably my mantra when I was a product manager. And as I work with teams now and work with other CPOs and coach CPOs, that is still a mantra. If nobody buys it, why are we building it? If nobody will buy it, why are we building it? So yes, that's ingrained in my DNA. Your product can't be good if no one bought it. I don't care what you tell me about any of the statistics or any of the other things about it or how amazingly nice the code is, or it doesn't matter. If it's not being bought, it's not successful. All right. So we don't, we want everybody to be successful in 2024. Like that's our goal, right? So as people are thinking about, and they're in their midst of strategic planning, what are kind of before you dive in or as you process, what is the information? What are the inputs? What are the things they need to know or have, or ideally know and have in order to be successful? It's funny you ask that question because right now with one of my largest clients and the portfolio companies they have, guess what? We're in 2024 planning. And I would say over the years, there are common things I think that are best practices that we should all be doing all of the time. And a CPO that I work closely with, and we've developed a a friendship as a result of this, has a rubric or a pillar dynamic, I think, that applies all of the time. And he talks about market research. He talks about data. He talks about customer validation. He talks about understanding the revenue opportunity. And he talks about, obviously, the technology and the things that drive that. And he talks about connection to the business strategy. And to me, if you lay those things out as sort of high-level input, if a product manager, a product director, VP or CPO is starting planning in 2024, and they haven't started with what is my connection for my product or for my portfolio product to the business strategy? What are the short and longs of that? And then what market research, customer validation, competitive information can I use to start to build momentum and validate those things that my product can do and will do going forward? And then thirdly, what's my source of data? And then lastly, I mean, and this is probably for a lot of people feels upside down. Lastly, and what's possible with the resources and the technology platform that I'm working with? And that oh. literally is the way I believe, and I borrowed this from someone else, that all of us should be approaching the 2024 cycle. It should be coming from top down. A CPO should be taking this charge and guiding his or her team in this process. And if she is really adroit and really good at this, these are things that she's hopefully been thinking about, not just this week, right? As we step into the first day of fall. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be the, the, we would be late in starting, but let's, can we take those like one at a time a little bit and, and walk through each one? Perfect. Yes, All right. absolutely. Let's start at the top. So one of the things that, and I'm going to overlay and everybody's talking about the current macro, but I'm, so I don't want to spend a lot of energy regurgitating all of the things that we already know, you know, cost of money is higher uncertainty in the environment, all of that. But one of the things I'm seeing that's being The result of that is that at company board levels, at company leadership levels, there is a higher sensitivity, or I should say even a higher scrutiny around the notion that why are we building this in relationship to what the outcome, what the business outcome will be? And whereas, let's say three years ago or four years ago, there was an assumption that If we build this 
capability. If we build this additional feature, if we add this function within our, our product portfolio, we will succeed in buying it. We will succeed, excuse me, in selling it. Someone will buy it. And that assumption, I believe, is either a question mark next to it now, or mm. it's out of the equation. Mm. Some places I'm seeing there is no assumption that it's go prove it, sort of like the mentality of zero-based budgeting. I'm going to start you with the lowest level common denominator, what it takes to keep the lights on in your environment and your product and R&D structure, and everything else you add on top of that, you need to justify with some business mm. So mm -hmm. as we start looking at that as product teams, product managers, product leaders need to be very keen and very aligned. What is the current temperature in the business and climate? So if my, my overall company strategy is to retain customers, then my product strategy needs to complement that, facilitate it, and provide a vehicle to execution. If the environment is so severe that my company strategy is to retain and maintain, then my product strategy needs to complement that as well. well. And if you have a growth strategy, obviously that's the easiest one, is line up all the ducks that you can and go out and figure out what we're going to do to grow the business, whatever the percentage it is that you're after or seeking. Most companies that I see aren't in extreme growth mode and they aren't in extreme maintain mode. They're somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. and are being very selective about the opportunities they pursue. And so that's, I think, just a base level awareness of how is my roadmap, my product planning, my resource allocation lined up with the current tenor, the current atmosphere of the business. I think that's really important for prioritization and also communication, right? Absolutely. This, this is one of those, like, you, you're going to take a note when you stop driving and you're listening to this podcast and you're going to, like, underline this, right? That when you communicate every step of the way in the budget and planning process. And even after it's approved and you're reminding people why we're doing things, you are going to tie this to the business outcomes from your organization and the goals they have placed. Because it's too easy to be like, well, because we talked about this cool new product or feature or roadmap or so-and-so has it. And we, 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 we get lost in those details and we need to regularly bring it back and bring it up for everybody involved to really understand what we're doing and why. You raise a, a good point about the need to continually communicate and set expectations. And it's almost as if, as I'm walking and watching and I'm working with several companies right now that are going through this planning cycle and this resetting, it is as if they are having, in some cases, to revalidate some fundamental hypothesis about the business mm. that was mm -hmm. locked in three years ago. They're no longer locked in. So when you <laughs> confront that, I'm going to move to the next piece, which is how connected are you to the market? Yeah. When's the last time you've talked to a, not one customer and not a, we in a sales pitch, I don't need part of a sales call. When's the last time you've actually gone and extracted information, environmental information, health and well-being information from a customer or a potential customer? Mm -hmm. And if your information about the market is stale, or if you don't understand some of the pains that your customer are, are living with right now, by the way, they're in the same environment, right? Yep. And it doesn't matter what business they're in. If they're in the banking industry, if they're in the construction industry, those are two industries that have been impacted by yep. our yep. dynamics. Then so a lot of the things that you've banked on that they may have told you two years ago are no longer applicable. I can only think of one industry where maybe things are looking really good, but even they're operating under tighter budget, which would be the healthcare or health IT space. 
but they're still having to scrutinize their expenditures and their commitments. So all of our customers are dealing with the uncertainty in the environment as well. So your research, your market research, your data, your connection to the market and the customer needs to be refreshed. And again, hopefully you're not starting that this week. Yeah, hopefully you've been keeping them. And it's interesting, you just published, it may have even been today, Mike, but it was very recently, you published an article sort of on win-loss, right? Because yes. I think, first of all, win-loss, every, it's the most underutilized tool and it's so powerful. But it's like the double-edged sword of the economy, right? We all know that the economy is bad and people going. And so there's a lot of, of assumption that they must not be buying then because they don't have the budget or because of price. And there may be aspects of it, but you really need to do the win-loss to really suss that out. Okay, where are they spending money? What are the constraints there? And what would make it more palatable, right? The essence of what you're saying and the beauty of what you're saying is sometimes we, especially if we're on the sales side, I come from that, bad economy, nobody's buying. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. What they are doing, your customers, your market is doing is scrutinizing expenditures. They're not on a maintain-only plan if they're reasonably healthy. They're making investments. And what they're looking for is to align investments, the investments in technology, the investment in solutions with very specific and right now probably very immediate problems they're having. Yes. So I had somebody else I was working with on a project and he said, the common thread for me right now is I need to pivot our messaging to sound like a painkiller versus a vitamin. And I thought that mm. was just absolutely oh. crystallized. Because well if, if you're in this environment, you don't want to be selling supplements and vitamins because that's a promise for future outcome. And most of us right now in the business community are focused on things that are going to give us immediate return, immediate relief. That was such a great summary of it. It's such a great example, but it also means that that by understanding that what's really going on, you're going to shift, you're going to shift your priorities and your planning from a sales side, from a marketing side, and potentially from a product development side is where that's am I right. going to get more of those? That's right. That's right. All right. So the we, third we, one I think we were yeah. talking about was data. Absolutely. It's a huge one. It is a huge one. And this one is, you know, we use a ton of data lake and this is to me, like a data ocean. So what data are we talking about? Are we talking about the data that our customers need and use to run their business? Potentially, because we may find that our product capabilities may add something to their environment to make them make decisions faster. But that's one element. But really what I'm thinking about in this context and what I'm focused is the data that are, we're getting from the telemetry and the data we're getting from the product that we have installed in our accounts. I have a really nice case study of a product organization I work with. I cannot offer their name. They are a SaaS company. They live in the SaaS world. They provide capabilities to the trades industry to help the trades industry. And we're talking about in every community, there is some guy in your neighborhood or some girl in your neighborhood, if you will, that has 10 trucks that you call up when you've got a flood in your house. They're regional most of the time. They're not usually not national. And they have, and you know them because they're around your neighborhood. And my neighborhood is service masters. And they, if you have an AC problem, if you have a plumbing problem, that's who you call. And those people are obviously not huge businesses, but they run a very tight ship around trying to deal with workflow capacity and that sort of thing. So they provide capabilities that are mobile-based for that. They found through some data that they had, they'd installed a telemetry 
capture system. I guess I could name them. It's Pendo. They installed Pendo okay. and, and they had done a good job of the implementation and what they found on analysis that they were losing customers in a trial period because of some things that had been built into the product. Mm. And this data that they gleaned from this gave them the, the visibility to see on the buyer's journey or the user's journey, the, a large percentage of people be it bailing at a particular point. And the product team took the analysis of that and realized these gates that we have in here, mm. they're not serving anything. They use it to architect a way around the gates and he watched the conversion rate on trials go from a low 20% up above 40% in a short period of time, like 60 days. Wow. So here we had a roadmap initiative that was going to line up and do all these big infrastructure things. And they found out the fix to drive the funnel was something very straightforward that could be implemented in very with well, minimal engineering effort in a very short period of time. And so I look at things like that and say, make sure you're really looking at the data mm. and what the data is telling. And specifically, user journey data, usage data, those kind of things will reveal a lot. Well, you think there too. I mean, think of the, the size of the impact and the low cost it had at a time when that is, I mean, that's exactly what everyone's looking for, right? Everyone's worried about, about some of the other economics still. So to be able to identify the change, make the change. And that just means your top of the funnel efforts are paying off bigger. It means the stuff that's already built. It really, just a huge amount of impact, but it would be easy to miss that and spend a whole lot of money thinking the reason they're not converting is because we don't have you know, W feature and everyone else does. So we should build this big we W feature. an extensive analytics and BI capability or yep. the other one we hear a lot. We need AI. That's why right? they're not converting. Yeah. Like, no, we need to basically give them an easier, less friction-oriented path to get to a conversion. The other one I'll offer in terms of data, and this is a place where some product teams are involved heavily and some are not. So I understand that there's a dynamic there, which is pricing. Mm. It's understanding... Mm our value to our customer and our value in relationship to price. And I say this, and I do work as an advisor with a couple of startups, and I say this to them, and I have another example of a case study example of this, is everyone is raising price. And if we're trying to create an impact on our product and our delivery of product, and by the way, we also know that if we are, have cogs in our product delivery, our product solution, our price has gone up. And if we haven't looked at pricing and we haven't looked at our pricing data and the market data on pricing in the last 24 to 36 months, it's overdue. Mm -hmm. And the case study I have is a company that was looking at trying to figure out how to soft pedal and tip throw through a pricing negotiations. And they went out and started with their best customers, started investigating how would you, how receptive would you be to a small marginal cost of living increase? And their best customers happened to be partners who were selling with and selling through. And they heard overwhelmingly from the research that they did. We expected you to do this almost a year ago. So right. we had already ranged our prices in anticipation of oh. what you were going to do. So it's one of those, you know, if you'd gotten there earlier, you could have benefited from it sooner. But the fact is you got there and you were able to understand the price increase example is one that says testing the market, testing, and not just on how you're using the value function. And so yes. data on value received, data on competitive relationships to value delivered, those are the kinds of things that we need to look at as well. 
I would add to that because I, I couldn't agree more, right? Raising your prices. I mean, there's just nothing but falls to your bottom line. You obviously, everyone's got a little bit of risk in there, but but understanding the value, but also understanding the groups that get the highest value and really thinking about segmentation in terms of pricing is just a huge opportunity. And one that, again, it's a place where in your planning, you should be reviewing your pricing every year, if not sooner, depending on, on what kind of business you are but also really looking at segmentation and the data you have to see if that is an additional lever that you can use so that you're really maximizing pricing where they're getting the most value. I told that story to one of the startups I advised and two weeks later, they raised a price. Yes. And I asked them, so have you seen any negative fall? I said, none, not one, not any. And so I think the market is braced and expecting that given what we live in in terms of inflation index. I think that handled properly, and you said it, you want to be careful about how you do this. It's called over-communicate. Yep. It's called say what you're going to do and why, rationalize it within the business context, say it again, come back and visit with people. And if somebody comes back and raises an issue, you take the conversation and explain the rationale and go forward. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. Right. Well, and yes, I mean, and there's so much opportunity there. I mean, on the B2C side, the number of price increases there has been through the roof. Like I, I'm a big, you, know, you do it once, you like rip the bandaid off. But on B2C, I mean, there what was, we were talking to a Portco partner company and they had raised prices 13 times in the last 18 months. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> like, clearly the, the market all understands what's going on. I use a lot of tools in my consulting business and all of them have raised prices and I didn't even get a notice. It just showed yeah. up one day, right? One day the bill went up and you're like, well, <laughs> so it's I got to use just, it. It's part so... of what we're dealing with. But for yeah. the B2B space, the enterprise space, I think it's an overlooked lever. Yes. And if product management doesn't own pricing, they should feel accountable, some accountability and some yeah. responsibility for making sure that that's something that's looked at by the people that are running pricing in the organization. And that the people, yes, 100%. And then I think one of the things product management can bring to that discussion, even if if they don't own it, is that idea of the the value, right? That using the market resource to demonstrate the value helps everyone's justification of the update of pricing. And that's really a conversation that product, no matter who owns pricing, can have a valuable piece of. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. So we talked about sort of tying it. my to- pillar. Those were my three pillars. Uh, there yeah. was fourth. The fourth one, well, it was the final step. So those were the three pillars, right? The outcomes, the validation, the data. And then we talked about then you look at resources, right? And that it may seem at the end, it may seem yes, backwards. The fourth one, involved, right? Not, 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 to say, not to say it's the least important, but in terms of priority, I think locking on the upper three mm-hmm. gives you the ability to rationalize and justify what you're asking to do, what you're what you're hoping or aspirationally wanting to do in the coming year. And so then to me, it's about, I used this term the other day, similar type of exercise. Sometimes we in product teams are guilty and so are we, our engineering counterparts are called what I call spreading technical resources like peanut butter. (laughs) I have six products in my portfolio. So all of them are going to get a nice spread of peanut butter over their respective pieces of bread. And we know that those products don't perform that way in the marketplace. We know that they're not all equal. And yet we somehow, out of habit, tend to want to do that. And so what I have been doing with some of my clients is challenging them to break that mold. 
mm-hmm. and come up with the rationale why. And the first three things that we talked about, the marketplace, the opportunity, the alignment, the business strategy, and the data to prove it are the rationales about why you can now say, nope, we're not going to spread peanut butter. We're going to make serious bets on things that make sense that are relative to value contributed and value received in the marketplace and our ability to succeed in that process. So that's, to me, the think about it. And then the other piece of it is, this is sort of the lower hanging fruit is, you know, we've had a principle that we've lived by that we want to build these great things. And I would say, look for smaller incremental things that can add value as well, not just the large, massive undertakings. Some of the smaller things, I mentioned the example of how to speed up or accelerate the flywheel in the trial conversion example. There's another one that I can point to where the company had two products that were sort of operated independently, came into existence by merger. They've done some limited integration, repackaged them for cross-selling and upselling purposes. Those are things that we can look for that have faster wins or quicker wins with limited impact on budget and faster, obviously faster contribution to market. Okay. I think one of the other things that if you do those three pieces correctly, right, the look at the outcomes, the validation from the market, you've got the good data and you have a compelling case that we've all seen opportunities, particularly if you are PE backed, that having that information and that really clear case can unlock resources and budgets and opportunities that wouldn't be there, right? If, if you... Absolutely right. Yes. So that's another reason to start that way. Now, that doesn't mean like magic things are going to happen, but it does give you, because you've got that foundation, the opportunity to go to an ask because what you're talking then is about a project with really strong strategic impact on overall enterprise valuation. And that is a, a different discussion when we come to budget than, hey, I think this would be a great feature to add. I think that's sort of the rotation that this current landscape we're in requires. Yeah. Um, Companies are placing bets. Private equity firms are placing bets. They know they need to continue to grow these businesses and make them attractive. So the healthier the process around market research, compelling business case, those kinds of things, the more likely that you're going to have a conversation Mm -hmm. that says we're willing to place this bet because you've shown us with confidence that placing this bet has a reasonable return. Yeah, because it's not that PE firms don't want to spend money now. They do. They are just looking for more confidence, I think, as you said, and more data before they make those bets. I mean, they always want it. (laughs) And and there's a correlation and it's a negative correlation. If you don't do these things, then what will happen? And it's not just with PE-backed firms, it's all firms. They will press down on maintaining either flat expectations or even reducing expectations, which squeezes our resources. And so it's in your best interest as a product person to be proactive and assertive about these pillars we're talking about for nothing else other than the livelihood of your own product, your own capabilities within the team and your own contribution. And to me, it's just a lot more fun to be on offense than it is on defense. I don't know. That's just my thinking. No, absolutely. hundred percent. All right. So we've talked about the four pillars, which I think are great. And I think it is also the flow that matters most. And like you said, hopefully you've been working on these things throughout the year. And if you haven't, like, there's still things you can do. You don't have to panic. All right. 
Well, no, that's fair. And by the way, I interact with people that said, hey, we've been busy doing, and it's a bunch of things, a series of things that are high value, but it hasn't been this preparation. Mm-hmm. And so the question comes out, what can I go do in the short term? And you hit on one earlier. You can conduct a win-loss analysis fairly quickly in yep. 30 days. You can go off and do a win-loss analysis and come away with some data that gives you something to triangulate with your assumptions and, and hypotheses about your business. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the other things that that trips people up sometimes on strategic planning, we are always building budgets for the year. That's how it works, right? I need to know what your budget needs are for 2024. I need you to break it down by month. They'd love it if you could break it down by weeks. But one of the things that can feel really hard, right, is how do I build budgets and create strategic plans for the year while still allowing ourselves to be flexible and agile? If the question, I mean, I want to make sure I understand the framing of the question. Is it the planning using agility principles in the planning process? Is that what I'm understanding? Or is it the ability to then, I'm going to use the term, change and or rotate or pivot as the year goes on? I think it was more the second, but I mean, I would take both. (laughs) Okay. So, well, let me, let's take both of them. So in terms of the practice of planning and maintaining agility, I think that's important. One of the things that I think it is not one of the things, it is the thing that I ask people, and it's a fundamental agile principle, this is an iterative process. So if this is the first time you're engaging with doing strategic and product-related planning connected to the larger business strategy, you're not going to be an excellent strategic planner the first time out. So it's collecting the things that you can get whatever data that is, whatever hard information is, whatever understanding you have about the company strategy, whatever the state, the product strategy is, collecting it together and using the mental and instinctive acumen you have about your space, your domain, your product, and pulling it together and say, does this still make sense? And then Mm -hmm. getting cross feedback and input from others and buy-in from others. And I don't mean just your product buddies. I'm talking about going out to the sales organization. Does Mm -hmm. this still make sense? Is this still relevant? And going the same and doing the same thing with marketing. And so if that becomes the outcome of a first iteration of a strategic plan for 2024, it's sort of, that's what good looks like. And no, it's not the best, but you're going to continue to iterate. Now, Mm -hmm. two thoughts. You can wait until next year to come back and iterate again. And you're going to probably still, I'm going to use the term, you're still going to suck at it. Or you can iterate on it in 90 days and you'll be better. You'll know more, you'll have seen more, and it will get easier as you do it. My favorite phrase for this is like going on a diet and exercise program. It's grimy at first. It's hard. Mm. And you have to do it long enough to start to get good at it. And this is no different. And so that's how you become agile and fluid and be, being able to pivot at the process itself, is you got to do it more than once a year. The other part you ask is sort of maintaining the flexibility as things change to sort of switch things out. And I think that's a great question. And I apply a similar principle is I would say to anybody I'd advise, you're not going to put together a plan for a 12-month period. Your plan in this process, mm-hmm. depending upon the planning horizon your company has, depending upon the maturity of your company, it may only be a consecutive four 90-day plan. Fair? This is what we'll do in Q1. And that should be firm. You should have a lot of confidence about how that looks and how that shapes. 
And then this is what we're going to do after we do that in Q1, assuming everything in Q1 turns out the way we expect it to. And then we do this in Q3 after we do everything in the first half, assuming everything turns out the way we expect it to. And the point is, and the operative term is, turns out the way we expect it. And mm -hmm. so things change in the first 90 days, and we're going to pivot around what we do next. If the things change after the first half, then we're going to pivot around what we'll do in the third quarter. And if we do that, then we always have a way of not over-rotating on a hard lock plan, but having sort of a, not sort of, it is a, a general direction. I'll use the, you know, the cliche word, true north, and this one's not at 50,000 feet, this one's probably at 5,000 feet, that lets us continue to move forward in a direction we believe is correct, but understanding that our altitude may change and our compass directions may change based on what we see. If we run into storms, we're going to change compass directions potentially or raise our altitude. That's kind of the way I think you do that and stay agile and stay true to being a, using agility principles. No, and I think that's really interesting. So I'm just, I'm thinking like, you know, again, there's a lot of pressure at the beginning at, at, in this time of year to like map out costs for the next, you know, for all of next year and then do green budgets and et cetera, et cetera. But I also think what your plan lets, what it really does is it highlights and brings up and sort of codifies the places that we're going to go back and review and make decisions. So instead of being like, hey, I think that's what we're going to do for the year. We'll maybe change it. You go, hey, this is what we're going to do for 90 days. At that point, we're going to reevaluate. And the, the clearer we can be about what X, Y, and Z might be, and maybe our revenue so far, what the pipeline looks like, the speed of what we get through, and we're going to reevaluate, that moves from, geez, it's really scary. You don't know what you're doing to, oh, wow, okay, this is a really smart way for us to be able to pivot based on a lot of different market and business headwinds that are happening, right? I, at, at, especially right now, because there's so much uncertainty out there. Nobody right? knows when it's going to change. We always wish I, we did. I walked into my lobby today at the building and I was watching some guy say, uh, looks like there's going to be proverbial soft landing, some expert, economic actually, looks like there's going to be proverbial soft landing, at least that's what the Fed believes. And then there are 15 other council of economic advisors believe it's not. When all of the, all the indicators and all the experts and indicators are totally diffused and diverse about what they see and what they think they're seeing. And by the way, what I described in this planning cycle is true to the core of Agile principles. Yeah. We know that when we build a product feature, there's a high degree of uncertainty at the beginning. Call it the tone of uncertainty. And we only can start planning for as long or for as far out as we can see. And the, to me, the business planning principle and the practices around strategic planning are exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it goes from being a weakness, why don't you know, to a strength. Oh, good, you understand that the, the business has a lack of, you know, that we can only see so far. It does mean from like some of the the resourcing perspective and stuff that you also have to remain more nimble. I would imagine for 2024, I'm saying this and maybe I'm wrong, that for many industries where there are all these many questions, the place you're going to get the biggest pushback is full-time hires. Yes, yes. And so then it requires... I'm working with the company right now. We're doing some planning. The R&D team has said, we think we're short of headcount to meet what we expect to see is the business plan. Mm. And how would you, they asked, how would you, if you were us, how would you go about justifying and proving that this is necessary? And I said, in this environment, that's a hard hurdle to clear. That's a hard bar to clear. 
yeah. because there's so much uncertainty out there. You're asking for full-time hire. So my ask them in the homework assignment they got was go first through your current organization and look for places where there is inefficiency. Find it on your own. Don't let finance find it. Don't let your COO question you about it. Go and do your homework and really scrutinize where you may have excess or inefficiency or, or ineffectiveness. And that could be any number of places inside your existing headcount about doing development and QA and all of those sorts of things. And once you recognize that, you may find it's not as many people as you think you need is something less. And then finish the homework assignment by looking for alternatives other than full-time hires. Yep. You got to be open to that in this environment. And so it sort of pushes the onus to product managers, their development counterparts to do more of the homework and more of the prep work than they would have done previously. Because in previous cycles, all they had to do is just, just go ask. Right. And the, the, the headcount was given. Well, now you're going to probably get questioned about it. There's probably going to be some scrutiny applied. They may be thinking flat budget. And when you walk in with a 7 or 12% increase in headcount, it's going to create some emotional reactions. You better be prepared for that and have done enough preparation and homework and scenario analysis to lay out a case. And you might not walk away with a 12% increase in headcount or 15% increase in headcount if you're asking for it. Maybe you only get 7 but that's better than being told no. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, to your point, the homework of other ways of doing it, you can show the analysis of the pros and cons of those. You can see how it affects timelines. All of those, again, show that what you recognize is the need and you're open to how you solve it. Now, uh, we, we yes. would all we would all always yes. rather have full-time employees. There are so many less questions and it feels faster and less complicated. But I think there is a reality that everyone's trying to balance here. Of we yes. don't know. And, and you know, we always talk about with the budget, like we can't create, have costs that we don't see realistic lines of revenue to, right? It's like, well, why can't we have more people? Well, then I'm just going to have to increase the forecast in a way that you don't believe. So that's not going to help us. Right. And, and so that's the other side of it, right? Is that if we go in and ask for these things and they're not tied tightly to the realities of the business or the realistic expectations of the business, and I want to come back to the word expectation in a minute, then what's going to be layered in is a growth plan that's not obtainable. And that creates a ripple effect that nobody wants because yeah. you get to a point in the growth plan, goal achievement where it becomes understood it's not realistic, and then people start making adjustments to bring the plan back to reality. And that, to me, is a worst-case scenario. Yes. That's, the, that's, the, that's the ugly part of all of this that we don't want. And you're just shifting the burden to a different part of the organization. Not that revenue isn't everyone's part, but it does. It puts an enormous yes. amount of and, pressure and, and on delaying, And delaying something that could be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I said I wanted to come back to this expectation. Yes. Since we're talking about planning 2024 and planning in general, the most important thing I think for any product executive, product leader, product team lead, product manager to do through this process is manage expectations. Keep the expectations realistic. You know, the old cliche under promise over deliver sort mm. of idea is, mm -hmm. is, I think, an adage to think about and then keep expectations updated because as things change, you should be communicating what has changed and its impact on what assumptions were out there 30 days ago, 90 days ago or whenever it was. 
Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, the speed at which things change is much faster than we think, right? We're like, oh, I can update them every quarter. And that honestly, things move a lot faster than that. Uh, So finding the, the right method and cadence to show that you're on top of it, but also doesn't feel ping pong ball ish, I think is a really important piece. No, I think that's correct. Absolutely right. All right, Mike, we talked about lots of different things about strategic planning, but if you were going to have people listening, focus on two things that you really, really want them to remember as they either start or finish their 2024 planning, what would that be? Data is the key to your success in this. Mm. Getting data about how your product is being used, getting data about the market and or customers or potential customers, validation points on that data is absolutely crucial. And then the next thing I would say is managing expectations. Having your own expectations aligned, that's by connected to the business strategy and the product strategy, and then communicating those expectations along with assumptions as you go through the process, knowing that things will change. Good advice, Mike. And as always, it's, I thoroughly enjoy every time we talk about product, your, your wealth of stories and experience and advice always leaves me excited and, and you know, rapidly taking notes <laughs> to use myself. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you, Rebecca, because it is a conversation and it just flows. And I oftentimes forget about how much time we spend on it. And it makes it a lot of fun. And your questions are insightful. They make me think. So I enjoy this as well. Excellent. All right. Well, that does it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Mike, for joining us. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.